right, we're back in John chapter 3. Let's uh, look at the text. We're going to um, walk through some of the texts we looked at last week and consider a little more, uh, maybe a little more, in a little more detail, the second half of last week's section, particularly verses 16 through 21. Uh, verse 16 being obviously the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. Um, however, John 3.16, uh, while it's a verse most people know, and some even believe, most people don't fully grasp the depth of the truth that is actually in this one verse. And in this verse, we see the love of God in its most clear, succinct, expressed form. And so the context, obviously, is coming out of this conversation we looked at last week with Jesus and Nicodemus. And then he gives some further explanation in verses 17 and following. Uh, so we're going to look primarily at verse 16, but we're going to use the, the, rest, the, the passage before and after, particularly after, to help us to understand how we, uh, how we consider uh, the love of God. And so we'll start reading chapter 3, verse 1. We'll read through verse 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So last week we considered this, this initial conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus on the basis of the signs that chapter 2 tells us Jesus had been performing, and he's trying to understand what authority Jesus is performing these signs under. And Jesus does not address his comment at all when Nicodemus says, hey, we know you're of God because no one can do what you're doing unless he's from God. And Jesus just seemingly takes a 90-degree turn in the conversation and says, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, Nicodemus is obviously confused. How can this be? Does he enter into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said it has to be water and the Spirit. And so we talked about purification, cleansing from sin, but also being made new, uh, the life that comes through the Spirit. And uh, then Jesus uses the wind analogy to help him to eventually understand this is deeper than you realize. And you cannot understand these things of the Spirit of God merely thinking about these things from uh, flesh eyes. And so Nicodemus says to Jesus in verse 9, how can these things be? Indicating that he's still confused about the whole situation. Uh, Jesus chides him somewhat, somewhat in verse 10 and says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, you're the one who should who should be getting all this. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a, a member of the ruling council, an expert in the law, should have recognized everything that was happening with Jesus. He should have seen Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you're the one who should get this, but you don't get this. And my testimony is validated, and 
just based on what you're seeing, you don't believe you're you're expecting me to tell you deeper things and you're going to anticipate believing those. It's not going to happen. And then he says, verse 13, Jesus speaking, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so verse 15 there going on the picture of Moses lifting up the serpent in Numbers 21 where God's people were being bitten by snakes and dying. They had to look to the bronze serpent in order to live. Jesus uses that picture saying, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Major transition happens in between verse 15 and verse 16. And if you just read, if if there are no verse numbers in the text, if you're just reading it in paragraph form, you get to verse 16 and you're just kind of like, wait, that sounds a little different. And so what happens is John is using words of Jesus in verses 16 through 21 to explain what verse 15 is talking about, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so then we hit verse 16. It'll be our key text for this morning. We'll read through verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The love of God. Chapter 3, verse 16 of John teaches us in brief, succinct form, the depths of the love of God. And so we'll consider each phrase. There are four phrases primarily here in verse 16 that we'll consider uh, for our sermon this morning. The first statement that we'll make from the first phrase is that love is God's motive. Love is God's motive. He begins verse 16 with, God, for God so loved the world. So we see the, the transitional word there for in verse 16, which helps us to know that he's using the content in 16 and following to explain what has just transpired in verses 15 and previous. And so when we hear this statement, for God so loved the world, we're reminded of one essential truth here. God is the divine initiator. God is the divine initiator. The subject of this passage is not our being saved. The subject of this passage is God. God is the subject of this passage. And so God is the divine initiator. And so let me just ask a question here. When you think, when you think about God, what actually comes to mind? When you think about God, what comes to mind? A.W. Tozer famously wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so what we know about God, we learn from God, from the Word of God. And so let's just consider a few of the attributes of God to kind of wrap our minds around this statement, for God so loved the world. One, God is independent. He does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Acts 17, 24, and 25. God is also immutable, which means He does not change. Psalm 102, 25, and 26, and other passages. God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no succession of moments. He has no ending. He is timeless. Psalm 90, verse 2. God is omniscient. He knows all things actual and all things possible. 1 John three twenty. 
God is good. He is the final standard of good, and all that He does is good. Luke 18, 19. God is holy. He is completely separated from sin and is absolute, absolutely pure in all that He is and in His essence. 1 Peter 1, 16. God is love. God eternally gives of Himself. 1 John 4, 8. So when we read this phrase here in verse 16, for God so loved the world, let's be clear who we're actually talking about. We're talking about the divine initiator. And so... Love is God's motive, and God is this divine initiator. As the divine initiator, love is this divine motive. So this is the first reference of the word love in John's gospel, but it's a word that he'll use 35 more times as we track through the gospel. And so the question has to come, why does God love? For God so loved the world. Why does God love? He loves because it's who He is. He's acting in in harmony with his character. It's his nature to love. And so we have this idea here. You, you miss it because it's such a small, seemingly insignificant word in the text, for God so loved the world, which reminds us of the intensity of his love. His love is not in moderation. His love is a massive, overwhelming type of love. For God so loved the world. And one writer makes a comment about the the the. The New Testament word that's translated for us, so here. The word so must interpret, must be interpreted as indicating in such an infinite degree and in such a transcendently glorious manner, God so loved the world. So we see the intensity of His love. We also see the intention of His love. God so loved the world. God does nothing by accident or by coincidence. Nothing just happens with God. He loves on purpose. And so the tense here of the word loved indicates that God's love is in action and it has been in action from eternity past and it will continue to be in action from in eternity future. And so this intention of his love is directed toward the world for God so loved the world. And that's us. That's us. And all throughout John's gospel, he uses the word world in in various ways. And so we have to let the context of the passage help us to understand what he's actually meaning. So it could be the created order. It could be all of all of creation, the world. It could be the system of evil, uh, harmonious with, with darkness and sin. Or it could be specific people here. Now, we have to understand the context for God so loved the world. Jesus had just wrapped up this conversation with Nicodemus. You notice in in verses 1 through 15, Nicodemus asks two questions, and after the second question, we don't hear anything else from Nicodemus. It turns from a dialogue into a monologue, really, because Jesus starts unpacking what it means to be born again, and then he transitions and brings into the the conversation. It's It's born again, but born again also means believing. And so when he says, God so loved the world... He's refer, he's, in context, he's saying, Nicodemus, this is not just about you. This is not just about ethnic Jews. This is not just about Israel. But this is a love for the world, for all nations, for all peoples, for all tribes, and for all tongues. A gospel for us. And in and of, in the, in the idea of the, of the world, like, we, we like the darkness. We're not lovely. We, are most often in denial about our love for this darkness. And then, so what does God do? God loves with this intentional and intense love and pursues us with this love. Now, left to ourselves, what are we going to do? We're going to deny His love. Every time. Every time we are going to deny His love. One writer 
and commenting on this idea of God loving us makes this statement about refusal. What if our refusal of God's love impeded God's love for us? What if God stopped loving us? What if He said, so that's the way you want it? Then have it your way. You hate the light, you love the darkness. Your whole approach to life is to sin and then fake happiness. You refuse to be honest? Okay. But you cannot hold to your self-satisfying pursuit and have my love at the same time. This relationship is over forever. What if God got to a point to where He said, my love is done. Who could blame Him? Who could blame Him? But God doesn't. He pursues us with His love for God to love the world. Now there's a key to understand here. Uh, very necessary clarification as we think about God loving us. God does not love us with the intention of His love, with the intensity of His love, because we are worth loving. He loves us because He is love. Romans 5, 8, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ because of the great love with which He loved us. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, and this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the sin payment for our sins. You see, God does not set His affection toward us. God does not set His love toward us because we are inherently worth loving. The point of grace is that we are not worth loving. And God loves us still. And when He brings us into His family and names us as sons and daughters, He says, you are an enemy, but I make you mine. You're an object of my love. And God's motive in expressing His love toward us is His love. His motive is love. Salvation, the gospel, proceeds from the loving heart of God. It is not something that is squeezed from Him. The language here is not that God loved enough to give, but God loved so then He gave. And His love is not some vague, weird, sentimental feeling, but it's actually love that costs. Which brings us to point two. So point one, love is God's motive. Point two, Jesus is God's gift. Second phrase in the verse, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So because He loved, what does the Father do? He gives the best gift that He could possibly give. His Son. God gave Jesus freely, without coercion, without manipulation, without force. God freely gave Jesus. This is what we've been pushing back on in chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so in, in God giving Jesus, we see Jesus living the worthy life that we never lived. And then we see Jesus dying the guilty death that we deserve to die. And by His life, His death, His resurrection, Jesus fulfills every demand of the law of God in our place. He atones for our guilt. He satisfies the wrath of God against us. He conquers death on our behalf. He did that all as our substitute. Because in our helplessness and sin, we could never dig our way out. Any attempt to get out, we're simply heaping dirt up on, on ourselves over and over again. And so what does God do? God gives His Son fully without holding back at all. 
God gave him up through the cross. He abandoned Jesus to the desolation of wrath that we deserve so that forever and ever he could give us the things we don't deserve. God gave Jesus, Romans 8.32, he, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So God gave Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's, there's a second reality here when we consider the fact that Jesus is God's gift. Not only did God give Jesus, God also sent Jesus. You see, Jesus had a specific mission and a specific purpose. You see it there in verse 17. John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So Jesus did not come into the world as part of some last-ditch effort to fix everything that we had messed up. It's not as if God is in eternity past thinking, I know they're going to mess it up, how are we going to fix this? And then as the story starts to unfold, you get to the certain moment in history and where they're like, well, I guess somebody's going to have to die. No, this is part of the divine sovereign plan from eternity past. This is not some type of bailout. Jesus was sent for a specific purpose to accomplish redemption for His church. This, this statement we read just a minute ago from 1 John 4 applies here as well. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but they loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Isaiah 53 reminds us that it was the, it pleased God to crush His Son. The cross, church, is our fault. We, what we bring to the dynamic of salvation is everything that makes the cross necessary. And into that dynamic, God gave His Son and also God sent His Son. What did it cost for you to be saved? What did it cost for me to be saved? It cost Jesus. Let that reality sink in for a moment. What did it take for us to be saved? Jesus had to die the death that we deserved. And how often are we guilty of just blowing right past that gospel truth in the everyday avenues of life? That for me to be saved, it cost Jesus. And to remind us again, He didn't give Jesus because we are worthy. He gave Jesus because He loves. And if you think about it, if, if the depth of love is measured by the value of a gift, then God's love couldn't be greater, for this gift of love is His most precious possession, His only eternal beloved Son. He could not give more. How much does God love us? Look at the cross. Look at the death. Look at the atonement. How, is there a greater measure or expression of love that we could imagine? Jesus is God's gift. So love is God's motive. Jesus is God's gift. And then number three, faith is our response. So back to verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him. Faith is our response. We've pounded this word believe over and over again. We're going to continue to see it. John uses it several times here in this one passage. What must we do to be saved? Believe. Believe. Most of the common church practice is misleading at best and even condemning at worst. Because oftentimes, in 
our contemporary church culture, what must I do to be saved, ends up with pray this prayer, walk this aisle, perform these acts, check off these boxes, fill out this card. Okay, we're high-fiving you on the way out. You're good to go. And not getting to the true reality of believing. Being saved is incredibly costly, but it's incredibly simple. What did it cost? It cost Jesus. How simple is it? We believe. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him, we have the privilege and the responsibility to believe. This is where the whole book of John is going. We've read it several times. John 20, 31. These signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And the problem with putting incredibly practical steps towards salvation is it become, it really becomes a works-based reality. Well, did you do this? Well, did you do this? Well, did you do this? Did you do this? Yes, 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 and yes. Oh, well, you're saved. Well, if you're not careful, then you become the author of salvation. You become the one who, who's accomplished all of this. When the essence of Scripture points to this one question, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in such a way that you just know about? No, but you actually know. Not just attainment of knowledge, acceptance of facts, but believing in a way that you are staking your life on this to be true. Do you truly believe? And so faith is our response. So we believe in a person. Our belief must be in Jesus alone. We believe in a person. Our belief must be in Jesus alone. We are, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here's the reality. Our default position is that of condemnation. We exist condemned already. We don't have to work to get toward condemnation. That's verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world's already condemned. Jesus didn't have to come in and say, hey, you're all condemned. That's how everyone already is. And so we're, we're condemned already. We don't have to work to get to condemnation. We don't have to stop believing. We're already, by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. And contrary to, to popular culture, the world is not morally neutral. We are not, none of us in this room, none of us are morally neutral. Default position is anti-God. We come into this world against God. And so, therefore, we believe in a person that is the opposite of our default position. We are condemned already and for whoever, that whoever believes in Him. And literally, it, the language actually reads, whoever believes into Him. And so by believing in Jesus, we are brought into Jesus. And so now, where we were once under condemnation, we are actually found in Christ. Where we were once objects of wrath, we become objects of affection because we believe on the person of the Lord Jesus. So we see a person here as we think about faith as our response. We also see a process. Like, wait a minute, I thought you just said there is no process this thing. Well, the process is belief. This is a one-step deal. The process is one step. This is not several levels. We don't move from one stage of belief to another and then finally achieve this true belief. When we believe, we believe. This is not works-based religion. This is not a system where we can bring all of our achievements and attainments to the table and God says, okay, now I grant you belief. 
No, we bring all of our sin and wretchedness to the table and God says, you're an object of my, my love. Now, believe. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. The whole aspect of salvation in Ephesians 2 teaches us that all of salvation is a gift of God. By grace you've been saved. Gift of God. Through faith, Gift of God, not your own doing, gift of God. Even the faith through which we believe on the Lord Jesus, God gives to us. Let's be clear here. If we miss this, then salvation is up to us. Even the faith with which we believe on the Lord Jesus and are saved, God grants to us. You heard it there, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. God in His kindness and in His grace grants to us the gift of faith. And we believe. And we believe. And so there's a person we're believing on. There's this process, a simple belief. But there's also this promise. This promise of whoever believes in Him has eternal life. This is an eternal guarantee. This is free and available to all. Those who have the inside track, like the Jews, like Nicodemus, and those who are far off, us. And what does God do? God opens our spiritual eyes to our sin and our condemnation. We hear the Gospel with hearing ears. We see Jesus with seeing eyes. And we believe. We believe. And we are justified freely on the person and the work of Christ without earning anything, without merit, without works. The faith with which we believe on Christ, He actually gives to us. And if you're thinking, it sounds like this thing's all about God. Well, then congratulations, you've heard something this morning. This is the whole point. That is the whole point. And let's not forget the default position, verse 17, is that of condemnation. Default position for man is that of condemnation, which compels us to actually believe. And so salvation through Christ, through faith in Christ, allows us to escape this condemnation that we are under currently. So love is God's motive. Jesus is God's gift. Faith is our response. And then number four, eternal life is our reward. Eternal life is our reward. Back to verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Should not perish, but have eternal life. The final reality is not how much good we've done versus how much bad we've done. This is not about how we stack up against other sinners. Let's just be real for just a moment. We are experts at the comparison game, right? Like, I can find someone worse off than me. I can find someone better off than me. Which leaves me where? In a perpetual cycle of defeat. This is not about how we stack up against one another. It's not about how much good we've done, how much bad we've done. What matters is whether we believe in Christ or not. This is a matter of life and death. And so, Jesus in His words here, John in His record here, gives us a contrast. The contrast between perishing and life. Who believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's consider perish first. Death. If you don't believe in Jesus and on Jesus, you die. You perish. Either you believe in yourself or you believe on Christ. 
You're staking your eternity on you or you're staking your eternity on Jesus. You hear the truth of the gospel and you reject that truth and then you remain, verse 17, condemned. You remain in darkness. You continue to hate the light. And so the word perish here means that that you bear the consequence of your sin for all eternity in hell and you bear the consequence of your sin now. And so there is a current condemnation and a future condemnation. And you notice the language in verse 16 that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Which points to the fact that outside of Christ you're already perishing. Like that's the, that's the current position. That's the current status. So current condemnation, but also future condemnation that is going to result in eternal separation and torment in hell. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And so in rejecting the gospel, rejecting the truth of the gospel, rejecting Jesus, you will, by that rejection of God's glorious gospel and His Son, perish. Or you can believe. The contrast here is clear. This is darkness and light. This is death and life. So we have perish... But we also have life that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Not just life, but eternal life becomes ours in Jesus. This eternal life becomes ours in Jesus. It's where we started in John chapter one, verse four in him was life and that life was the light of men. Just listen to several verses from John's gospel that refer to this life first chapter 3 verse 15 we read it just a moment ago whoever believes in him may have eternal life chapter 4 verse 14 the water that i will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life chapter 5 verse 24 whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has sent me has eternal life chapter 5 verse 39 you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life it is they that bear witness about me 640, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Chapter 12, verse 25, whoever loses his life, loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So back to chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we have to be careful to be clear on this point. Jesus is certainly talking about heaven. And Jesus is also talking about now. A few chapters later in chapter 10, he's going to say, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And so this love of God that we believe in and trust in by faith is not just some reality that we're banking on for when we hit the grave and enter into the hereafter. But this is a reality that impacts now. It impacts today. Eternal life is available now to us and is ours now as we are in Christ. Ray Ortland in his book, The Gospel, makes this comment, eternal life is available right now to hell-deserving sinners massively loved by the all-glorious God who gave His only Son. The only thing He asks is that we respond to that good news by turning from ourselves and receiving Christ with the empty hands 
of faith. So what must I do to have this eternal life? I must believe. Let's not complicate this, church. Let's push. We are inherently complicated. We like to make things more complex than they are. And we have to push toward simplicity. And so that's why John 3.16 is a verse that we never graduate from in the Christian walk. We never, we never move, oh, I got John 3.16 taken care of. I'm going to move on to the deeper things. No, John 3.16 is the deeper thing of the Christian walk. And so what must we do to have eternal life? We believe. John 20.31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have what? Life in His name. God gave His Son. God gives us faith to believe on His Son. God gives eternal life by our believing on His Son. And so therefore, to Him alone be the glory forever and ever. You go to the end of the section here, verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God. Jesus' statement there reminds the reader, reminds Nicodemus, and reminds Redeemer Church that this is all God's doing. That it has been carried out, His works have been carried out in God. This is God's work. He's doing it His way, and He's doing it for His glory. And let's be clear. This is for our good. This is for our good. Not just for the happily ever after in heaven either. This is for our good right now. So John 3.16 is not just a verse that pops up in the stands of a football game. It's not just the verse that someone paints on the side of an overpass. John 3.16 is a verse that God implants into the heart of a Christian and reminds us that God set His love toward us. And in setting His love toward us, He opened our eyes to the reality of our sin, to the beauty of Christ, and then empowered us to actually believe on Him. And He's doing His work in us His way for His glory. And it's for our good. It's for our good in heaven when we are free from sin and in His presence, but it's also for our good now. 